Well, welcome. <laughs> I could have seen that one coming. I do appreciate that uh, we didn't like balance the room, and so I can just kind of gear right into this zone tonight. Because uh, I'll let Cal, you want to get, you want to be released? Is that what you're, you, gone. If you are like Callaway in kindergarten through fifth grade, you can follow Pastor Dave and head to children's worship and have yourself a really awesome time. It's going to be fun. The rest of us, you can grab a Bible. Oh, my son is pumped up to get ready for the minute to win it games, apparently. So anything that gets him thinking about something other than Mario is okay with me. So for the day. Hey, uh, I want to begin uh, just in a word of prayer, and we're going to jump back into the Gospel of John, just spend some time uh, studying the Bible and worshiping together tonight. All right, so why don't you pray with me, and then uh, we'll go from there into John chapter 4. Father God, uh, we're, we're grateful for a night like tonight. Um, it's, always, it's always different and interesting and, and just kind of uh, quaint and, and intimate to have uh, smaller groups in a cold and crazy and tundra-filled, just desolate time of Wisconsin. And uh, as, as we kind of work our way through that, uh, it does afford us this, this sort of neat opportunity that uh, here we are on a Saturday night doing church, uh, being the people together that are uh, yours and, and want to know about you and want to be in relationship and fellowship with one another. And so I pray that uh, you prepare our hearts tonight. Let us be a people that as we uh, read and study the scriptures, it would reveal truth to us that we would be worshipers in spirit and in truth, worshipers of who you really are. And so uh, help us, guide us in that as we study together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you who are brave enough to make it uh, in the day 72 of like zero or below weather and all of the hideous things. And like, believe it or not, we're like less than a month away from daylight savings time and the start of spring. And so, and we're like six months away from the snow melting. So it's going to be great. I'm excited about that. Uh, In the meantime, we get the opportunity to sit in a building with heat and worship the Lord. So if you have a Bible, go with me to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in the pew in front of you, uh, and you can grab it, thumb your way into John in the New Testament chapter 4. We're going to continue our series working through the Gospel of John. As we do, let me kind of catch you up on where we've been over the last few weeks so uh, that you're not coming into this interaction blind. Uh, We've said that John, uh, as an author of the Gospels, is a man writing near the end of his life, he's actually been a disciple of Jesus, walked with Jesus while he was on earth following the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, went forth proclaiming him into all of the surrounding region as the rest of the disciples did, as their command was for them. And so uh, he lives years and years. In fact, he's the oldest living apostle, disciple. When he writes the gospel account, he's the last one that's left. uh, And he's writing kind of this concluding message. And he says right at the end that the reason he wrote all of this down was not to provide 
a comprehensive account, not to say this is everything that happened during the, and it's primarily taking place in three years, the three years that he was with Jesus. Instead, that he zooms in particularly on a set of events or certain things to help us know and understand the identity of Jesus Christ because he sees that as the most important question in all of human history. Who is Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Because ultimately everything comes down to that because what John's going to say is knowing Jesus is knowing truth and knowing Jesus is the pathway to eternal life. That if you want to be made right with God, if you want to have life and life everlasting, that it is found in nothing other than Jesus, the divine Son of God. And so we spent a lot of time in the first chapter, uh, first half of the first chapter, in fact, watching as John really lays out the identity of Jesus as someone who was fully man, fully flesh, so that he could relate to us, he could come onto our level, but that he was also fully divine, that he had the ability to forgive sin unlike any other human being that's ever come about. And so uh, as he's unfolding and developing this again and again and again, we've said now we're kind of getting into this section of just narrative. We're just telling stories about who Jesus is and what he does. And the purpose of these stories is that you might see and identify with him. Now, Take that all the way out to last week when we were in John chapter 3. We looked at a particular story uh, in a kind of book match of two accounts that we said, I think John is wanting to get at the two ways most frequently that people tend to miss what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and to be in right standing with God in the two sort of errors that they find themselves in their life. The first uh, we looked at last week was this kind of religious error. In fact, there was this guy named Nicodemus, very religious, does things right, was very moral, was very proper, was very legalistic, followed all the rules, never really found himself doing wrong, and it had brought him a great deal of power and authority. He was raised to a position of leadership in the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, he's doing, doing things the right way, and so when he approaches Jesus, with the understanding of Jesus as a good guy and what do I have to learn from you and do in order to be okay, Jesus tells him it's not about anything he could do, but rather you must be born again. You must be born of God and that comes only through faith in Christ. None of the works of our own, nothing that we can do, but rather in faith in Christ alone. And so uh, we said really that that should be very, very relieving uh, and as well as indicting in a culture that we exist in right now uh, where the bulk of the people around us, I think, struggle and ourselves included at times with the difficulty of feeling like our life will make sense based on the amount of good things we do and the amount of things we can accomplish. And we're just kind of always tempted to want to earn it. And Jesus is going, you can't can't earn it. You can't, no matter how hard you work for it, you can't earn it. And so uh, that kind of gives us one side of the coin. And then it's by no coincidence that John's going to continue on into the next account in Scripture and take someone who is the entire opposite of Nicodemus. In fact, it's much more common uh, in our culture on 
the opposite side of the religious moralism to find people that look like this Samaritan woman that Jesus is going to interact with. Someone who finds themselves uh, to be lowly, someone who finds themselves to be disconnected, someone who really sees themselves as unworthy of meriting God's favor. Maybe they don't feel like you could even set foot inside of a building like this because they just made too many mistakes or done too many things wrong or broken too many rules or just am not the church going type. My life has taken a different path. And John means to show us that not only could the religious moral people need to know Christ and need to be born again, but the people who had walked down a hard and difficult road of sin needed to be born again of him to worship him in spirit and in truth and both of them find as we do our salvation in Christ alone and so uh, the the story goes like this John chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. That's not the author, John. That's John the Baptist. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So let me give you a little context. We'll just kind of, this story tonight, read, explain, read, and explain, read, and explain. Uh, Jesus is in the land of Judea. He's just outside of the city of Jerusalem, which as Israel goes, is far into the south. And from there, Jews would collaborate and collect surrounding, especially the Passover, which is why Jesus was down in the region in the first place, uh, as we saw in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. There, many Jews would come. They wanted to worship at the temple. They wanted to offer sacrifice. And then oftentimes, because they had traveled from Galilee, which was far far north, and it was a significant journey, they'd hang out there. They'd spend some time in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the surrounding regions. They'd visit family, and then they would eventually make their way back to Galilee, or as many of them were, they would go back to the regions of Judea, which they still lived. And so Jesus, after visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, is in the land of Judea, and he's teaching. And as he's teaching, and as he's performing signs, and as he's doing some miraculous things, people are starting to take notice of him, and it's beginning to create a buzz in the culture, if you will. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are really kind of dead set against Jesus from the get-go, are looking to uh, do something about this, and Jesus, not interested in it being his time for this to come to a head yet, decides he's going to leave the region of Judea and go back to where he spends most of his time in ministry, which is Galilee in the north. Now, there's, there's one big problem with this. In between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north is a land called Samaria. Now, uh, Samaria was right in between the two and mixed with a group of people who had some Jewish ethnic backgrounds, but it had been mixed with other Assyrian backgrounds that caused a great deal of rift and tension between Jews and Samaritans. It was so deep that Jews, when they needed to go from Judea to Galilee, would not pass through Samaria. Instead, they would travel either east and cross the Jordan River and along the other side of the Jordan, travel north, and then cross again at the Sea of Galilee so that they could come back into Galilee. Or they would travel west all the way to the coast the Mediterranean Sea and travel north up through an area we know today as the Golan Heights. Either way, by doing this, they could avoid going through Samaria because they didn't want to deal with those people. 
Now, the Bible says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That is not a term of geographic convenience, and it's not simply an idea that Jesus didn't have any other choice. In fact, Jesus got down into Judea by going around outside on the other side of the Jordan River. He, the term had to pass through Samaria is it a term of theological pursuit. We're going to find out in a second that Jesus has a really defined reason for being in Samaria. He's got a divine appointment with a woman in Samaria. And so Jesus has to go there. It, it works like this. Um, my wife and I got to go out tonight for Valentine's Day. Thanks, guys. We, we had some old people watch our kids. And, so, and they survived, you know. Although there was, when, when we got back here, there was a little, I was a little concerned. I only saw two of the three enter the building. And Sherry said, no, 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 they all came in. I said, I don't see the other one. And I thought, if maybe they're just trying to slow play that they just lost one. And I, I'm not putting it past myself. I, but they're all accounted for now. Life is good. We got to go out on a date. Uh, it, was, it was awesome. It was the first time we celebrated Valentine's Day, like on or near Valentine's Day. I don't know, probably in a couple years. Maybe since last Valentine's Day, right? I'm not going to admit that I'm not great at that. Uh, anyways, doesn't matter. Uh, here's, here's the thing. We've now been married for thir- 12, 12 years. <laughs> Struggling. Some years. We've been together. That's what I meant to say. We've been together for like 13 plus years. And so uh, when I met Whitney, we were talking about it this week. It was on a Wednesday. Uh, we, we were doing, I was at the time home from college over the summer, and I was helping out with youth ministry. And so we were doing some ministry with high school kids, uh, and her younger brother was still in high school. And so she came to pick him up, and I was a youth leader, and I met her. We talked for a little bit there, and right away in like a 15, 20-minute conversation, I knew there was something significant uh, that needed to be explored further, right? And so what it left me with in the days to follow were a few have-tos. I had to, the next day, drive down about 30, 40 minutes away to the girl's house that I was dating at the time and break up with her, okay? So it was not a good conversation. I knocked at the door. Oh, we were like home from college. So good to see you. I'm glad. I said, it won't be good to see me. We're done. And then got back in my car and left. I wasn't the greatest at that. Uh, But I had to do that, right? Because I knew that I had something coming up. In fact, on that Wednesday, during that conversation, I got invited, not even by her, but by her friend, um, was like, like, I'll take that as an in, uh, to a Relay for Life, like, walkathon on Friday night. So uh, I knew that I had to go to that walkathon, but I also knew that I had to be single by the time that I went to that walkathon. So Thursday, I had to break up with my girlfriend, and then Friday, I had to really support the Relay for Life, because, I mean, that's a good cause, right? Only time I've ever walked with them. Not saying it's a bad cause, I'm just saying it's just wasn't important to me unless she was there, right? And then I found out that night that she was working at the mall. And so the next day, Saturday, I had to take my brother to the mall to buy him some jeans. That's just what a good brother does, right? Like, that's, that's what you should read in verse 4 there when it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's, it's not a term of convenience. Jesus, as you're going to see and you need to see, is pursuing a relationship with someone that thinks that he has no business pursuing him, that that thinks very low of themselves and does not see themselves as worthy of what he sees in her. Here's, Here's how it goes. Came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. 
and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Hold on to that term, sixth hour. We'll come back to that. Uh, there, Jesus, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's the scene. They get into the outskirts of a city. The well in most Jewish and Samaritan cities at the time was set up just outside of town. Uh, Jesus sits down and hangs out by the well. Sixth hour, that's about one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, They're hot in the desert. He's hanging out. His disciples say, we'll go into the city and we'll buy some food. We're going to maybe make camp here and we'll get on to traveling tomorrow. While he is alone, a woman comes out to the well to draw water. And she, as she's approaching, sees Jesus, he sees her, and he begins to speak to her. And not beating around the bush, he's forthright and says, give me a drink. And she says, how would it be that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am, and then she's going to say two things, a Samaritan and a woman. Now, this is significant in this day for a couple reasons. First of all, Men in this culture didn't even speak to their wives in public. It was uh, culturally taboo and out of line for men and women to converse with each other in a public setting. Uh, That included even your own spouse. And so, uh, first of all, the woman's caught off guard that Jesus would show himself as one who would speak even to a woman. Second, and far beyond that, it was unbelievable that a Jewish man would speak to a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. In fact, John parentheses it this way, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, here's what happened. Let me give you a little bit of history to help you out with this. Some 700 years before that, the land of Judea and Israel were split into two countries that were once one. If you know a little bit about Bible history, God delivers a land to his people that he has promised them. It's a land that is uh, rich in resources. The Bible actually calls it flowing with milk and honey. They have a few generations where things go really well in that land. In fact, uh, at the early stages of the kingdoms of Israel, they have a king named David who is a man after God's own heart. And he uh, really brings about a great deal of uh, security in the land, puts together a nation that is united underneath him. He dies and his son Solomon ushers in this time of like great prosperity. Everything is going really well in the land of Israel. Solomon dies, and his kids, uh, for lack of a better term, they're just idiots. And, and right away, his son, Rehoboam, uh, acts foolishly, pridefully, and naively, and pushes away half of the nation. And so all of the northern half of this once great united nation of Israel splits And the north becomes known as Israel, and the south becomes known as Judah. And you no longer have one country, but you have two that is at the brink of a civil war. Now this continues on for some 400 years. That's a long time. It's older than the United States. And as generations pass, kings die and new kings come. And the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah are really 
at odds with one another most of the time. Now, it turns out that this, in 735 B.C., really comes to a head. Both of the countries have evil kings who don't know or respect the Lord, and they get into a fight with one another. And while they're fighting with one another, they do something that kings often do. They try to bring in some outside allies to help them win the fight. And so the nation of Israel calls down to Egypt and says, help us, if you can help us, your spoil might be the land of Judah. And the nation of Judah calls out to this new up-and-coming empire called Assyria and says, you help us, and if you help us, your spoil might be the land of Israel. Well, it turns out that Assyria happens to be very powerful. They come in, they set peace to the specific civil war. However, as it is when these things happen, Assyria moves into the land of Israel, settles and besieges the land of Israel, and takes all that were left of God's people and exiles the vast majority of them out. There's a ton of pain, there's a ton of death, there's a ton of destruction. And then, not only that, but what they do with the small amount of God's people that are left is they begin to intertwine them with Assyrians. They start to cross-marry in between the different ethnicities, and then they start to intertwine their religious preferences. And so they take some of the religion of the Jews and some of the true things of God, and they begin to mix them with all of these pagan and false and uh, foolish religious falsehoods. And so out of this, from 700 years earlier, is a nation of Israel that is now known by its capital city, Samaria, that is mixed with Assyrians, that is opposed dramatically to the Jews who live primarily in the south, in the land of Judah. And you have a nation of Jews in the south who looks with condescending hatred towards the nation of Samaria. They see them as religious and racial half-breeds, as people that aren't really respecting and caring about the Lord. And so in this little parenthetical, John just notes that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They wouldn't even walk through the same countryside. They wouldn't talk to each other. They would not be around each other. And yet Jesus, knowing this about this woman, looks at her and says, give me a drink. She says, how would you, being a Jew, speak to me? I'm a Samaritan woman. Now, what's in particular interesting about this is that uh, term there, no dealings. It, it literally, it's a, it's a uh, dinner term. It means using the same utensils. Jews, Jews and Samaritans would not sit down and eat together. They're not socializing. They're not hanging out. And then this is what Jesus says. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, and then he says this, living water. And she uh, doesn't get it right away. So she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Remember, no dealings, not using the same utensil. She comes with a bucket, and she's going, not only do you want to drink, you want to drink from my bucket, and you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. We can't do that. That's not okay. How are you talking about living water? I just don't get it. And then she says this, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water physical water will thirst again 
But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You see, Jesus, in his pursuit of this woman, is trying to get her to understand it's it's not about me getting a drink and it's not about you getting water. It's about you seeing who I am, that eternal life exists in Jesus alone. Now, she's still missing it. In fact, uh, she misses it in a way that I think is, is so common in our culture now, especially when it deals with Christianity and it deals with the idea of religion. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. You ought to hear a level of uh, depression in such a statement. She's, she's very interested in Jesus as one who could fix her problem. And the problem is this, that she's come here to the well to draw water, and it's the sixth hour. It's one o'clock. Now, uh, Samaria is in the desert, in, in the hottest part of the world, and going to the well to draw water was the woman's work in that culture, uh, which meant that it was going to happen in two ways. First of all, it was going to happen in the morning or the evening because you were going to avoid the desert heat. You wouldn't come at one o'clock. And second of all, and I know this because it was a woman's work, it's going to happen in groups because women don't go anywhere alone. Come on. You guys are lame. All right, it's a bad joke. It's fine. You could at least, like, smile, though. I'm just going to count it, Mary Jo. I, the mask, counting that it's a smile somewhere, right? So here she is by herself at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. What's she doing drawing water? Well, we find out. Jesus says this. Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus looks at her and reveals, and this is is a beauty of the gospel, reveals her sin, reveals her issue, reveals her problem, lays it bare on the table. And he hasn't drawn away from her, and it's not uh, revealed to him. If you remember, just a couple weeks ago, we began uh, John chapter 3, looking at the verse right before, at the end of John 2, it says that Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to the crowds because he knew what was in man. He knew the heart of man. He knew the heart of this woman. He knew everything about her. This was uh, frequently the indictment about Jesus. Uh, in fact, there's a story in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is sitting down at the table of a Pharisee, a religious leader, a guy who's very well revered and respected in the community, and a lady comes in, and she begins to uh, just, just do something honestly weird, uh, even in that culture, weird. She, she pours perfume on his feet while he's sitting and eating, and then she begins to cry, and she takes the, the perfume and the tears, and she pulls her hair down, and she begins to clean his feet with her hair. Weird. It's just weird, right? And, and the whole situation is kind of bathed in this like awkwardness of Jesus sitting at the dinner table and a Pharisee, a religious leader who does things the right way, seeing and watching this and then 
turning to the others at the table and saying, if this man knew who was touching him, he wouldn't allow it. For this woman is a sinner, and so this man must not be a prophet. You see, the accusation was that Jesus didn't know who this was. And Jesus goes on to tell a parable about why this ought to be so much more than that. In Luke chapter 7, he tells this parable about two people who owe a debt, one a small debt and one a debt well beyond what they could pay. And he says, who has their debt forgiven and would love more with greater gratitude? And the guy, uh, the religious leader goes, well, certainly the one who owed more. And Jesus says, yes, uh, you miss this. You have no gratitude for who the God of the universe is as he's sitting at your table. And yet here is a woman whose sin is going to be forgiven and because of it she loves much she knows me because Jesus knew what was in people and so here he is in front of a woman who hasn't yet understood it and the beauty of the gospel the beauty of the good news of Jesus is while she's broken while she's in darkness while she's in sin while she's resistant to him while she is at enmity with him a child of wrath those are the terms that the Bible uses dead in her trespasses and sins Jesus looks at her, calls her sin to the table, and then doesn't back away. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and your people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, I think she's, she's still kind of dodging a little bit. I think this is like what, what you do when convicted with something sinful in your life is you kind of go to like a theological question and see if you can kind of deflect the blame off of you. I think that's what she's doing here. But Jesus is still pursuing. He says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain where they're at nor in Jerusalem where he was and the temple is will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what you know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Later, Jesus will call himself the way, the truth, and the life. That he's looking at her and going, if you want to worship, it's not about a religious duty at a place. You don't have to go to your mountain. You don't have to go to the mountain that is in Jerusalem. You need to see the Father in spirit and in truth. And finally, her eyes are opened. It says, the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when that one comes, he'll declare to us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm, I'm the one. I'm the one who will declare to you all things, and you simply need to place faith in me because I offer you living water. Not some religious duty, not some set of works, not some things you ought to do, but rather trusting in Christ. Now, at this point, there's a couple things that I want to point out before we finish. Okay, A couple ways that, that I think we ought to apply this passage. The first is this. Um, we're, we're not Jesus in this account, right? I, I think 
throughout the years, especially if you grew up in the church world, uh, you might hear this in a way that is, oh, like you should be like Jesus to those who have lived a difficult or broken or unfortunate life. And, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. However, uh, we need to understand that this is a picture that gives us an image of the way that Jesus saves you and I. That in our density, in our sin, in our brokenness, in our resistance to Him, He pursues us. And He is not quick to let us go, but rather that He seeks worshipers who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's seeking you out. That He's coming to tell you that He offers living water That the beauty of the gospel is that it doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how many things you've done wrong. It doesn't matter how many places you've failed or fallen short. That he wants you to worship him. He wants you to know him. And that living water, this well springing up to eternal life, is sourced in him. It's not in how many right things you do. And it's not broken by how many wrong things you do. It's about knowing him. And so he's coming after us in that way. Now the, now, the second is this, um, for many of us, he's found you. He, he's found you, and, and like this Samaritan woman, we stand as ones who can worship in spirit and in truth. And what a, what a glorious thing that is. Um, let's talk for just a minute about what that does for us. Because, because here's what happens. Uh, at this point, his disciples come, and they're amazed that he'd been speaking to the woman. Yet, yet no one said, they're kind of Wisconsin passive-aggressive, uh, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They're just, they're just trying to figure it out, like something crazy has happened here. And out of this, uh, then the woman decides she's going to leave. Now, let me point out a couple things that happen in the next couple of verses. Here's the first. So the woman left her water pot. She went out of town in the desert. One o'clock in the afternoon, right? It's hard for us to imagine 97 degrees of sand at one o'clock in the afternoon trying to figure out how we're not going to be overheated, right? I get that today. It's, I mean, we're literally 100 degrees away from that right now. However, you walk out there with a water pot. Doesn't it make sense that you would get the water? I mean, she going back into the city. Don't you feel like you would still, you know, this is pretty cool. Let me hook up my water pot, get the water that I came out here for, and then go back into the city. Not what she does. That's, that's not an air of like, oh, I just forgot it. And John doesn't put it in here because it's not significant. What he's showing us is that she is so transformed, so enamored with, so captured by the truth of one who offers living water that the things that were once important to her don't matter the way they used to matter. Listen to me, Christian. If you know the Lord, all the things that the world is so convinced is dramatically problematic, should not keep you awake at night. Amen? The, the political things and the social things and the lifestyle things and the drama 
that exists in our culture, in our world. It's not, it's not that you disengage from them. It's not that they don't matter. It's not that you're not a part of them. But here's the thing. In Christ, you ought to have such a transformation that the most basic and the most practical and the most normal worldly things just pale in comparison to how much it matters to know the one who offers eternal life, living water, It's in Him. So it doesn't really matter what happens around you day to day. You can't steal that hope. You can't steal that joy because it doesn't exist in the water pot anymore. It exists in Christ, the well that is welling up in you to eternal life, living water that you will never thirst again. So she don't need that water pot. But get this, then she goes back to the city and said to the men, Here's here's the second thing that I think a real transformed life in Jesus ought to compel us to do. It ought to compel us to want to go tell people about it. This this ought to be a place that we want to be a part of, and Christ ought to be a person that we want to share. That that evangelism or or telling people about Jesus, it ought to... um, it ought to be something we're disciplined in doing. However, it ought to naturally flow out of us, especially for the people that we're close to and the people that we care about. Right? She goes back to her city and finds the people of her city and begins to tell them about Christ. Now, now here's the last thing. Look at this. Uh, she doesn't tell them in an academic or a distant way. Look at verse 29. It says, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. It's not the Christ, is it? That's a way to phrase it. It's it's Jesus. This is the Christ. I found him. He told me everything that I've ever done. Hold on. Just a reminder. What did he tell her? That she got six men, right? That she is like a Maury Povich show. That she's a broken disaster. That's what he told her. And she's not shying away from it. She doesn't have guilt over it. She's not there in the shame that she was when she walked out to the well all by herself at one o'clock in the desert. She comes back and goes, listen, he knew all about me. He knew my deepest, darkest secrets. He knew my sin. He sees you while you are a sinner and yet while that is true, he dies for us. That, that you and I ought to know that in the living water of Christ, that you can let go of the guilt, you can let go of the shame, and you can let go of all of the baggage that sin brings, knowing that in the depth of it, he loves you still. And he, he pursues you still. That we can rejoice in who Christ is. Now, let me close, close with this because uh, I think this is the best part of the whole account. Disciples come back. Um, this, this woman has left. They've come back. They've got food. Uh, they, have this, they have this little conversation about uh, what's going on with the food and the wages. And uh, they, Honestly, they're just confused. They don't really know anything about it, which is funny because they're the ones following along with him all the time. And this woman is getting it and it's clicking in a way with her that it's not clicking with them. And then it picks up in verse 39 and it says this. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, in Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified he told me all of the things that I have done. Here's, here's what happens. It continues to say that they go out and they ask Jesus, and Jesus begins to reveal himself to them. And uh, yet, it all starts 
with one Samaritan woman. One, one tiny act, one small little thing. Here's, here's the thing that I pray for us as a church, for us, us as a people, as we think about the next year and the next five years and the next ten years, is that we would be among us a people so transformed by Christ, so, so uh, passionate about the living water that he offers, that it begins to flow out. Not because of how great we are. We're not that great. We're not great at all. But rather that we know who is. We know where the well is. And from this one insignificant woman, many believe. Many come to know Christ. What a testimony that is. Pray with me. Lord, you know everything about us. From the the best to the worst, to the deepest, darkest place, to you said correctly you have no husband, for you've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. You know us, Lord. And I pray that uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't let us be tempted to rest in that guilt, to rest in that shame, to rest in that sin, but that we would bring forth a faith in you, the one who forgives, the one who came and died to pay for it, so that in you, you would offer up living water, a well in us that would spring up to eternal life. And that, that we would be a people who would say, come, see the one who told me everything that I've done. The one who knows everything about me. Come meet that Jesus. Let us, let us be a people transformed by you in such a way. Help us with it, Lord. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Let that be this, this land song, a song that we sing in truth and with the fullness of our spirit, worshiping your great name. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand? We'll sing one more song together.